you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Uh, please be seated. Uh, good morning. So I heard the story recently of a man who was a traveling evangelist going from door to door in different towns and um, got particularly weary of the response that he was getting on his journeys and eventually came to one final house that he was going to go to. And sure enough, the older woman who came to the house was very angry when she found out that he wanted to tell her about Jesus and who he was. And she demanded that once she, uh, once that he left, basically. And so she slammed the door in his face. However, the door bounced back and she said, get out of my house. She said, get out of my door. Get your foot out of the way. But ma'am, the evangelist began. And so she then slammed the door again and it bounced back. She said, get your foot out of my door and get out of here. I said, but ma'am. And she slammed the door a third time. Get your foot out of my door and get out of here. But ma'am, she slammed the door. It bounced again. I want you off my property. And so the man started to retreat and she slammed the door in again and it bounced again. She went, ma'am, you've got to let your cat out of the door. <laughs> People respond in different ways when they are encountered with who Jesus is or when they get the opportunity to hear about him. People have reacted to me in different ways over the years. I've had good experiences where people have said, yes, I want Jesus in my life and I get to pray with them and to lead them to the Lord. I've had not so great experiences where people have just politely declined me, said, no, thank you. That's not for me. I've had people who've just bluntly put it, get out of the way. I don't want anything to do with who that Jesus is. Literally on the street. Don't want anything to do with him. And I've even had people I've been praying over in Jesus' name who have run out of the room. Run out of the room. And I expect some of you have had very similar experiences to me. You see, when Jesus is proclaimed, people react in different ways. And we'll see that in our story today from the Acts of the Apostles. But what I want us to remember is that Jesus wants to transform the hearts of all people, including you and including me. He's after our hearts. So let's turn to our reading from Acts chapter 19. You can follow along in the scripture sheet, or you're welcome to just follow along on the screen, or pull out your Bibles or your Bible app and follow along on those if you want wider context than those will give you. And we're in the, our sermon series on the Acts of the Apostles. We've been looking at this throughout the summer, and we're actually coming to the end. This is our penultimate, penultimate week. Next week will be our final week as we look at Paul in Rome, and then we'll move on to a different series. And this series has been called Outward Bound because the call that Jesus gives to those first apostles is to go out into the world, not just to stay in Jerusalem, but to head on out. And we've seen them doing that gradually. It's been going wider and wider and wider until eventually. Eventually, last week, we saw Paul on his second missionary journey arrive in Europe and proclaim the gospel there. He crosses over by sea into Europe. He gets into Greece and he starts to share the gospel there. And the journey begins with Thessalonica, where he shares there. Then he heads down to Berea and then finally he heads on to Athens. And what we don't cover in the intervening chapter is that then he, he sails back and he heads back to Antioch. And that's where he eventually begins his next journey. And so this week, we're looking at his third and final missionary journey. I forgot to get a map up on the screen for you. I'm so sorry for those map lovers among you. I am sad myself. But he's on his third journey uh, before he's going to finally head to Rome, where he's feeling called to go. And he heads to Ephesus. 
And Ephesus, for those of you who don't know, is in what we would now call Turkey, or what was called then Asia Minor. It's the capital city of the Roman province of Asia Minor. So it's a, it's a pretty big region it sits in, and Ephesus is at a crossroads, really, for the world. And so it's a trading route that meets all kinds of different groups of people. They, they meet there, they come across each other, and so it's a very multicultural kind of place. Uh, one commentator said Ephesus' strategic position made her the treasure house of Asia, the treasure house of Asia and the mother of materialism and ambition. It's a wealthy city. There are people who are from all over the world meeting there. And you find in the middle of the city is an amphitheater, an amphitheater that can seat 50,000 people. People are coming to these games uh, and they're participating in them. There's also a, a huge temple to the goddess Diana or Artemis, which is known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it's a rich city. It's a large city. It's a place where people are gathering together and all kinds of religions are meeting in this place as well. And people are trying to figure out who is God. Who is God? And in the midst of that, Paul encounters three very different kinds of responses. He encounters people who choose Jesus. He encounters people who refuse Jesus. And he encounters people who use Jesus. So let's take a little closer look at our story, beginning with verses 1 through 7. And in this section, we see people who choose Jesus. We have this curious story about 12 men who are called disciples. They're men in Ephesus. And these men are people who are somewhat believers, but they've never heard about Jesus. Listen to this. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism, into John's baptism. Now, what's he talking about? What are they talking about? The baptism of John? Well, maybe if you can remember, if you've ever heard this before, there was a guy called John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus, who came before Jesus, and he prepared the way for Jesus. And many people got to hear him speak and were baptized by him in this baptism of repentance. It was more a baptism purely of cleansing. And he said, I am, I am one who will baptize you, but there's one who's going to come who's greater. And he's going to baptize you not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Now, these men are likely part of the Jewish diaspora. So they're, they're men who've come to Jerusalem and then traveled back to where they live in Ephesus. And maybe they totally missed who this Jesus guy was and what happened with him. And perhaps, obviously, therefore, they missed who the Holy Spirit is as well. And so they are people who believe somewhat in a God. They're just not sure who he truly is. They've encountered him, but they're not sure what they believe. Now, how is it that we can know about God, but not know God? How is that possible? Well, it happens all the time. And a great story of one person, a very famous believer where it happened, is John Wesley. Perhaps you've heard of John Wesley. He lived in the 18th century, and he was a famous preacher and hymn writer. And listen to this. Wesley's early life suggested that he would certainly become a man of God. He was the son of a clergyman, Samuel Wesley, and the unusually godly and dedicated Susanna Wesley. After a privileged upbringing, John attended Charterhouse and Oxford and became double professor of Greek and logic at Lincoln College. He also served as his father's assistant and was ordained by the church. 
While he was at Oxford, he was a member of the Holy Club, a group so nicknamed by the other students because they seriously attempted to cultivate their spiritual lives. Finally, he even accepted an invitation from the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel to become a missionary to the American Indians in Georgia, just south of here. He actually went down to Savannah, where he utterly failed, utterly failed. No conversions, no one listened. So forced to return to England, he wrote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who shall convert me? Well, not all was lost, however, because in his earlier travels to the Americas, he had encountered a group called the Moravians, whose living faith deeply impressed him. So upon his return to London, he sought out one of the leaders. And to use his own words, he was clearly convinced of unbelief of the want of that faith whereby alone we are saved. And on the evening of May 24th, 1738, Wesley wrote in his journal, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. That's British for I was converted. <laughs> it wasn't like, what? You know, that's sort of the American way. This amazing thing happened. The British, I was strangely warmed. <laughs> I was strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley's warming was the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit And amazingly, think about this, until Aldersgate, all those years he'd lived, all those things he'd done, his heritage, everything, Wesley was a man who knew more theology and was more dedicated than most believers. But he did not know Christ or the saving power of the Holy Spirit. He was in church, but he was condemned. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? And I think in our story today, we encounter a very similar group of people to Wesley. They've encountered God, but they actually don't know who Jesus is. They don't know him in their heart. They've not had their hearts transformed by him. That's what they need most of all. And so Paul, of course, he's like, he's probably really excited. These guys are interested. I am going to share the gospel with them. They're going to hear about who Jesus is. I'm going to explain who the Holy Spirit is and let's see what happens. And what happens? They go, yes, please sign me up. I'm choosing Jesus. And they choose Jesus. They're baptized immediately and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have this mini Pentecost that happens right there, right then. It's this, it's this um, experience that shows that God is at work in their lives, if you will. He falls on them. So these are people who choose Jesus. But next of all, we encounter a group of people who refuse Jesus. And this is not uncommon. If you've been coming this summer, you will realize that we have this more normal story that happens in the middle of our three stories. And with a pattern you you should recognize. Where does Paul go first? Synagogue. Where does he go first? That's right. Remember that? He goes to the synagogue first. Whenever he goes to a new town, he goes to a synagogue or somewhere where he knows people are interested in hearing about Jesus. They have some form of belief, okay? And then what does he do second? Do you remember? He explains what? Yeah, the gospel or the scriptures, right? He explains those. Third of all, he elicits a response. There's a response. Is the response always good? 
No, right? Sometimes they try and kill him. That's how bad the response is. We think we have it bad. Trust me, he had it worse. And then typically what he does is he continues to disciple, either through leaving some of his disciples there to help these people who've chosen to follow Jesus, or um, he actually ends up moving on and going somewhere else to disciple others once they are ready. So this is a typical pattern we see with him. And again, while we see some respond positively in this story, once again, we see people respond negatively as well and it gives me in some ways great hope it's sad but it reminds me that even the most persuasive of speakers even the most persuasive arguments even those who are just have the best form of teaching apologetics whatever it might be they don't always get a positive response sometimes people even the great apostle paul is turned down and they do not believe in who Jesus is. And so Paul decides, if they're not interested, I'm going to go to a place where people are. And he moves out of the synagogue into the hall of Tyrannus, a local believer, I'm sure. And he begins to lecture in the middle of the day. And in that time, they would take a break in the middle of the day from work because it was the hottest part of the day. It would be great if we could do it too. But we have this thing called air conditioning, right? And so they would actually go inside a place that was cooler from about 11 till 4. And then they would go back to work again when it was it was cooler outside and so paul uses that time to teach and you notice for two years he's there for two years and you see discipleship takes time if we want to know who jesus is if we want to follow him it takes time one hour on a sunday isn't going to cut it friends it's helpful trust me it's good but actually it involves much more than that it's being discipled daily through reading god's word being taught by others throughout the week meeting with a life group engaging in scripture in numerous ways over and over and over again if we want to truly grow in Jesus and as a disciple of his. And as a result, they're able to reach all of the province of Asia Minor. It's pretty amazing when you think about how big that province is. But they use Ephesus as a base, and I think they just gradually send people out to the different towns around there and reach it. So first of all, we had a group of people who choose Jesus. Then we have a group of people who refuse Jesus. And then we have a group of people in a particularly precarious position who try and use Jesus for their own good. We have this other curious story, don't we? It's about seven men this time. They are the sons of Sceva, the sons of the high priest. And these are Jewish uh, exorcists looking to make a quick buck. They've discovered that they've heard about these stories about Jesus and what Paul's been doing in the power of Jesus. And they think, well, we could use that in our little tricks and so on. And much like a, you might encounter a spiritual medium uh, somewhere in Charleston or somewhere else. And they think, well, I can make some money dabbling in the occult. They decide they're going to do this. And they're going to use Jesus' name, hopefully, for their own good. Look at what we read in our passage. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, they're in trouble, right? Who are you? Because they're not doing it in the authority of Jesus. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They have met their match, more than their match, because they're trying to do this not in the authority of Jesus, but simply in their own authority. And when you and I encounter evil, because evil exists, trust me, friends, in our culture, we might want to dismiss it, that's the temptation in our culture, 
If we try and take that on in our own strength, trust me, we are going to fail. It needs to be done in the authority of Jesus, who has power over all things evil. C.S. Lewis um, wrote a brilliant book on evil uh, called The Screwtape Letters. Anyone ever read The Screwtape Letters? You know what? I think it is a... It's actually a kind of a really easy and interesting book to read, but it took me three attempts to read it. And I think that was the work of the evil one. <laughs> I picked it up two times before I finally read it the third time all the way through, because I don't think he wants Christians to read that book. It is so brilliant how Lewis uses the situation. It's a fictional book between a senior devil and a young devil. And the, the senior devil is writing letters to the younger devil who has an assignment, which is one particular man. And he's trying to distract this man, lead him away from the Lord. And so the senior devil is writing him letters on how you do that. And it's absolutely brilliant how Lewis gets into the mind of how Satan, the evil one, might work. And I highly recommend it if you've never read it. And at one stage, the senior devil writes this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same uh, with the same delight. What he's saying is that, you know, the temptation in our culture is to either say, you know what, I don't really believe in that stuff. That doesn't really happen. And just dismiss it, the work of the devil. Or the other temptation is to get too interested in it and start to try and investigate it more, maybe to actually take on some practices that are not healthy. And so what happens when we do that is that we can either, if we're not a believer, we can end up possessed ourselves by evil. I've seen that happen, not so much here in Charlesmer, in other cultures in the world, I've seen possession happen. I think what happens more here, particularly with Christians, is we experience oppression, not possession. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that when we encounter evil, sometimes we allow a gateway into our lives that means the evil one can start to work in quiet and small ways that we wouldn't have um, allowed him otherwise. You know, Paul writes to the Ephesians later on, once he's got back from his travels, he writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He is very aware that we are wrestling against evil, and that continues today. And most of us are completely blind to what's going on around us, but he's still at work. You know, Satan can use people. Uh, He can use them for his purposes. He can use media. He can use technology. He can use, obviously, occultic practices as a gateway, and they become a gateway into our hearts. Once we start to dabble in some of those things, allow certain things into our lives, he he has a way in where he can start to oppress us and distract us from our relationship with the Lord. But, you know, what we see in this story, and this is the good news, is that when people encounter the living God, everything changes. Look at verses 18 and 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's about $6 million in currency right now. That's how expensive these books were. So these people 
they hear about these guys, right, who are set upon by a demon. They're like, oh, crap. <laughs> this is serious. Like, I'm a believer now, and I'm living in this multicultural sense of this, this world that has all kinds of beliefs and practices. And I've, yes, I've said yes to Jesus, but because I've come from this multicultural world, I'm just trying to take a piece of this and a piece of that from a different religion and a piece of this magic art as well. I'm going to hold on to those things. But the Lord starts to transform their hearts and help them to realize, no, there's only one way. And when you start to dabble in other ways, when you try this, what's called, I would call it syncretism um, of beliefs or pluralism of beliefs, actually it doesn't work. It allows Satan to have a foothold in your life. And you don't want any of that, any of that. And so they realize we've got to get rid of all that to the tune of $6 million. That's how urgent it is. You see, only Jesus has authority over evil. Only Jesus can transform hearts. And these people start to realize that. So what about us? What are we to make of this story today or these stories? Well, I wonder, who do you most relate to in the stories? Pat's first story. Have you encountered God, but you don't know Jesus or the Holy Spirit? You know, you have a mental assent. Yes, there is a God. But you've actually never said, Lord, I believe in you. I repent. And I'm actually going to give you my heart and my very life. You know, there are many people like Wesley who go for years, who go for decades, believing that they know who God is. But actually, they don't really know him from their very heart. They sit in churches their whole lives. I think it must be really miserable. Right? They've got all of the duty, but none of the joy. None of the joy. Because they don't, they're not fully alive in Jesus Christ. I wonder if that might be you. Well, the, the choice today is, well, will you choose Jesus? Will you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Repent and say, Lord, yeah, I give you my heart. I give you my everything. No longer am I just going to kind of keep you at a distance like this, keep other believers at a distance like this and say, you know what? I just want to come on Sunday and be done. I'm actually going to say, no, Lord, come and transform my very heart because that's what you want. Kent Hughes writes that there are three kinds of Christian. There are non-Christians, individuals who have not received Christ or the Holy Spirit, though they may have some degree of intellectual belief. They may, like John's disciples, have, been man- have even manifested a willingness to repent, but they have not yet met the resurrected Christ. Such individuals need to receive him by opening their heart to him, believing on him as their sole hope for salvation. He will then give them the Spirit and they will know it. He goes on and says there are also committed Christians who need to keep on believing. Continually believing in Christ means continually receiving the Holy Spirit's grace and power. And then thirdly, there are also Christians who used to believe. Such persons need the advice given by Christ to the church of the Ephesians, notice that, when they left their first love and as a natural consequence lost the vitality of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Apostle John writes, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Do you need to choose Jesus today, perhaps for the first time or once again? The second kind of people are, have you encountered God, but you're refusing to follow him? You've actually heard all about him. You've heard from the scriptures. You've heard very reasonable case, the fact that it's true that Jesus lived, died and rose again. And yet you are saying, I don't want anything to do with that. Anything to do with that? Be warned, friends. There will be a consequence for that. Choose today to follow Jesus. Do not refuse him. Do not refuse him. And then third group, have you encountered God, 
but you are using him and his name. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we can use even a thing, a good thing, like Jesus, our Christian faith, to advance our lives, maybe in our jobs, our careers, maybe for the good of our kids, perhaps. We might, you know, we might use certain, say certain things about ourselves that aren't true to get our kids into certain schools, perhaps. Those kind of things. We can use Jesus' name in bad ways at different times. And he becomes more like a good luck charm to us, perhaps. But if your life, if we were to look at your life beyond Sunday morning, what we would see in that case is the idols of your heart that exist. It wouldn't take long to realize that your heart is far from the Lord. As one commentator asks in response to today's passage, what would be burned today if the Spirit's conviction swept the church? Think about that big pile of books we heard about, right? What would we burn today, probably amounting to $6 million plus, in our midst that would actually, um, if the Spirit swept through the church? You know, I think first on the pile would probably be our cell phones. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the tools the devil uses to distract us, right? Probably be our cell phones, number one. You know, this past couple of weeks, I decided I am turning off my... Um, uh, when I get a message, it doesn't show up anymore. It doesn't show up. I have to go check my messages because I am done with being distracted in the middle of conversations, in the middle of prayer, in the middle of Bible studies, in the middle of whatever it might be, having a conversation with you guys. I'm done with it. So I just turned it off. And now every few hours, maybe I go, oh, I've got a message. There we go. I've got 20 messages. <laughs> Certain text, Jane, that shall remain nameless. <laughs> Not looking at anyone, Rusty. <laughs> but you know what? It's been very freeing. It's been very freeing. I encourage you to try it. You're going to find it hard. Trust me. We are like Pavlov's dog, whether you like it or not, friends. We have been conditioned already. What else might go on there? Well, I think you might close almost all of your social media accounts. Most of them would be gone, probably. <laughs> right? I think they're a tool of the devil often, not for good. You just have to look at the statistics, particularly for teenage girls who use Instagram. It is shocking what it does to them. It is shocking the way they start to view themselves. It's really hard to use that in a helpful way. It can be done. Don't hear me. Don't hear me wrong. It can be done, but whew, I think those would be gone. Um, what else? How about we would block certain websites, right? Yeah, that'd be number one, right? Certainly, I think there'd be some websites we just wouldn't go to anymore. Um, there would be certain streaming services. Uh, the subscriptions we would just cancel today. We're like, you know what? I'm done with Netflix, right? I'm done with that, or I'm done with Amazon Prime or Hulu or whatever it might be. Too distracting. Maybe our golf club membership would be torn up. Whew. Yeah. Ooh. Whoa, whoa, I got a little clue close. A little too close to the bone there, right? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Or maybe some other spiritual, uh, sorry, sports equipment or paraphernalia, whatever it might be. Maybe some of our personal goals would be gone because we realize, you know what, those are not of the Lord. Those are not of the Lord. Friends, what is it, what is it the devil is using to distract you from truly following him? You might need to quit alcohol today. That drug addiction you have, you might need to quit that today, right? Those are the obvious things. But when it really gets to it, most of us are struggling with one of those things I mentioned earlier, right? I mean, that thing has become a distraction where we just can't spend time with the Lord. We've actually given the devil a foothold in our lives. What is he using to distract you? 
from a full, meaningful relationship with Jesus? What are the idols of your heart that keep you from truly following him? There's one thing today as you go from here. It's, it's really nice when you guys say, you know, nice sermon, vicar, you know, as you leave. But what I'd rather hear is, you know what? I'm going to go think and pray about what you said today and ask the Lord to reveal to me what is that idol that is holding me back from following him. Yeah? That would be a great response to today. Friends, Jesus, because he loves you, hear that, because he loves you. He loves you, right? I hope you get that. He loves you. He wants your hearts. He wants your hearts. And when you stand and say, you can come this close, but not that close, Lord. He weeps. <laughs> he weeps. Because he knows that you are not living life as you were created to live it, friends. Will you give your very heart to him today? Will you give your very heart to him today and choose to follow him? You will not regret it, friends. Let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. I feel you moving in this room this morning. I know you're always present, but I just sense it today that you are speaking to hearts and to minds and to our souls. Lord, I pray that you will not let the enemy steal away what is being spoken right now. He longs to come and distract us right now this minute to just say, well, that's foolishness. Don't believe what he's saying. It's just foolish talk. What does he know? But Lord, because you love us, would you seal those things in our heart as we leave this room? Would you bring about transformation in our hearts right now and bring about change that we might know you and love you all the days of our lives? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.